Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians? We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Y'all can be seated. Thanks, Kevin. If you don't already, I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll continue on in our study this morning. And Kevin just read the first 13 verses. We will, however, look at uh, most of the chapter, but we'll take that a bit later. Um, That's right, kids, you guys are doing a good job getting to Kidlands. So in 1901 the British king Edward VII implemented a law that is quite peculiar. It's known to us now as uh, Sandringham time. So the king, he had a palace in the UK in a place called Sandringham. And he would go there kind of on his days or weeks off. It was kind of his vacation spot. And in particular, he liked to hunt at Sandringham Palace. There was just one problem. During the fall and spring when it was hunting season, the daylight was shorter there. And so he, as king, changed that. He simply changed the time. He had the clock set 30 minutes forward, or excuse me, behind, and that allowed him to have more hunting time. And so King Edward VII implemented this law called Sandringham Time. And Sandringham Time, uh, imagine being a resident there at Sandringham. You're on a completely different time schedule now than what you were before and what the rest of your countrymen are on. And yet that's the law, that's what the king implemented, and so you have to kind of function under this new Sandringham Time. The point is that uh, when Edward VII implemented that, it changed the way that the residents of Sandringham related to the world around them. And in 1936, Edward VIII actually abolished Sandringham time. He thought it was a little ridiculous. He got rid of it. And then once again, the residents of Sandringham, after almost 35 years, had to readjust their schedule to uh, match the king's orders. And the point of that is simply that the king had the right and prerogative to implement change uh, for those living in Sandringham. And the same is true for us as God's people. 
in the Old Testament, God regulated the way that his people would interact with him and the world around them. He made a covenant with them and stipulated how they were to relate with him. And in the New Testament, God does a similar thing. He regulates how his people will relate to him and how they will structure their lives. In the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people. He dwelt with them in the tabernacle and the temple. However, in the New Testament, God will dwell with his people by dwelling in his people. And he does this, of course, by sending the Holy Spirit to believers. And so this change in how God dwells with his people is what makes our passage this morning so significant. And so I want to look at our time um, this morning under three headings. I hope they will be helpful for us to get our minds and hearts around this passage. The first is divine action. The second will be divine interpretation. And then finally, we'll look at divine application. So it is my prayer that as we study this passage together, that we will feel the force of the passage. And ultimately, we will cling uh, more to Jesus alone for our salvation, that we will trust in Christ alone for our salvation while rejoicing in the great blessing of being part of this new covenant. Before we do that, let me pray and ask for God's help this morning. Father, we come this morning, Lord, asking that you would help us, Father, that you would calm our minds and our hearts. Father, we've had busy weeks. Lord, we've had hard things that we've had to deal with. Lord, we've had exciting things that we have happened. And yet all of these things come with us in the room this morning, Lord, and they compete for our affection, for our time. And Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, give us focus. Father, you would help us to understand your word, to not simply be hearers of it, but Lord, to be doers of it. Father, I pray that you would be with me. Father, you would allow me to be a useful servant to your people today. And Father, we pray that you would be, above all things, honored and glorified from our time together. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So first we'll look at divine action. We see in verse 1 that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, the day of Pentecost is, comes from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament festival called the Festival of Weeks. If you want to do some interesting reading, you can go to Leviticus chapter 23. And you can read about the festivals that God instituted in Israel's life. And in verses 15 through 21, you'll read about the Festival of Weeks. In short, the Festival of Weeks took place 50 days after Passover. And you'll remember Passover is that feast that God instituted to commemorate and be a memorial for Israel of how God rescued them from Egyptian slavery. They were to sacrifice a lamb and they were to daub the doorpost of Uh, with the blood of that lamb and as the the angel of death swept through, if the blood was on the doorpost, then the children were spared. And then Pharaoh, with haste, 
kicked Moses and the Israelites out, and so they left Israel in a hurry. And they took the portions, the rations that they had with them, and they took bread, but bread without leaven in it. And so that is the the Passover uh, festival that God instituted for his people. And then 50 days after they celebrated Passover, they celebrated the uh, festival of weeks. And so again, this festival is a grain festival. It was intended to be a celebration of God's provision and, and a thank offering of the first fruits of the harvest. And so Leviticus 23 says, You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So you see, they passed over. They, they didn't have leavened bread. They left with haste. God freed them. And then the festival of weeks, they have leaven in their bread and they give that back to the Lord as the first fruits. So this may not have been entirely in Luke's mind, but I think it is an interesting connection and one that I hope we don't miss. At 50 days after the crucifixion of Christ, 50 days after our Passover lamb was sacrificed, we're here in the upper room where the Spirit comes. And the Spirit is, as Paul says in Romans 8, the the first fruits of our adoption. And so that's where we begin this morning in the upper room. And so the Spirit comes. Spirit comes suddenly and with power came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And so we see the Spirit comes comes like a mighty rushing wind as tongues of fire. This language is is intended to to conjure up some Old Testament uh, recollections. This is the language that you read about in the Old Testament when God was dwelling with His people. God dwelt with his people by cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And now we see that the Spirit is coming to his people. And Luke tells us that the Spirit rested on each of them. And so as we have been thinking about some of the the dissimilarities and similarities between what what God was doing in the Old Testament and what God's doing in the New Testament, we we shouldn't misunderstand that God's Spirit was at work in the Old Testament. We read about Him being active in the lives of of kings and prophets. But the point is, in the Old Testament, the Spirit made a distinction. He didn't come to all people in the same way. But what we see now is that the Spirit is coming to each of them. The Spirit is no longer making a distinction between men and women, between apostles and those who are not apostles, but rather the Spirit has come to each of them. And the Spirit empowered them to speak, to proclaim the mighty works of God in their own language, in their own dialects. The miracle we see here is it's one of speech where the Holy Spirit empowers the gospel message to be heard by all who are present. And so Luke gives us a long list of of people that are present in Jerusalem. And the point is that Luke, again, early on is foreshadowing what he's going to do later in the book, is that the gospel will be going to 
all the nations. And so we see a small glimpse of that even here. And so we see that the Holy Spirit comes in a demonstration of power. And the Jews in Jerusalem, they they gathered as they were hearing these mighty works of God being proclaimed in their own language. But how did they respond to that? Well, the response of the crowd is ultimately still unbelief. I asked, what does this mean? And we're told that they were all amazed and perplexed. On the one hand, there was confusion. And then in verse 13, we see there was mocking or derision. And so I don't know if you've ever had this experience of of being perplexed, being confused. I remember I was in Boston one summer and there's a place called the, the Boston Commons. It's like an open market. It's really in the historic part of Boston. It's a really neat place. And you go there and you get tons of souvenirs. Uh, The first time I was there, it was a very overwhelming experience because there's a lot of hustle and bustle. I mean, it's in Boston. You've got huge buildings. uh, You've got lots of um, people that are moving around, buying, selling stuff, wanting your attention. And I remember uh, one day I was in the commons and uh, there was uh, a crowd that started to gather. And, you know, the, the crowd gathered and you heard people kind of on microphones. And so I just went with the crowd. I said, what's going on here? What's happening? Well, there was some, uh, it was like a team, like a crew. They were doing some, some dancing, some street performance. And I had kind of come in a little bit late to it. And so I was just watching them do their performance. And I thought, wow, these guys are doing backflips and cartwheels and jumping over, you know, five or six people. I mean, they're doing pretty incredible stuff. I was amazed at what I was seeing. And then all of a sudden my amazement turned to to confusion because they ended it by asking me for money for what they were doing. And I was confused. I had had missed the point of what they were doing. They were seeking to entertain us for the purpose of getting money. Well, I learned my lesson and didn't make that mistake again. The point is that I had missed the point of what was really happening in that moment. I got caught up in the crowd. I was confused. And that is one of the responses that we see here to the coming of the Spirit is confusion. The other response that we see is mocking. That word mocking, it literally means to make fun of. And so the other response on the other hand is not just confusion, but to actually ridicule and make fun of what these apostles were doing. To make fun of the working of God. Are these not the two responses that we see to the gospel today? On the one hand, we might share the gospel with someone and they might say, wow, that's great. I'm really glad that's true for you. I don't know what that means for me. It probably doesn't actually mean anything for me, but I'm really glad you've got that. That's cool. Confused. They don't actually understand what's going on. And the other response might be, that's insane. And miracles can't happen. I mean, only a buffoon would believe something like that. Only backward, bigoted, uneducated people would actually take the claims of the Bible to be true. Mocking, 
confusion and mocking. This is the response of the crowd and it's the response even that we're familiar with today. So what that means is that facts aren't enough. Information about the gospel is not enough, although we must have information. We must have the facts of the gospel, but that is not enough. If we have any chance, those facts must be interpreted. And they must not be interpreted by you or by me, but they must be interpreted by God. God must tell us what he means when he acts. Otherwise, our sinful minds will interpret that in the way that we want it to be which will ultimately be man-centered and self-exalting rather than God-centered and God-exalting. And so we see in these first 13 verses that the Holy Spirit comes in a new and fresh way, and yet the crowd is still in unbelief. And so Peter then, being filled with the Spirit, begins to explain what these events actually mean. So that's our second point. We see divine interpretation. So in verses 14 and 15, we read, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter... uh, lifts up his voice and addresses the crowd. That word addressed is actually the same in verse 4 where it refers to utterance. The point is that Peter's not just speaking out of his own uh, flesh there, but actually the, the Holy Spirit is empowering him to give this sermon. And so Peter first, before actually getting to the, to the meat, getting to the scriptures, he just appeals to common sense. Because these people aren't drunk. It's the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. What do you think? These people are drunk? No, that's not what's happening here. And so he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter really gets into the meat here of his sermon. And I hope that we'll be able to to kind of get a a bird's eye view of his sermon. Rather than getting uh, down into all of the details of it, I hope kind of uh, taking it in a big chunk will help us really see what Peter's ultimately saying and what that ultimately means for us. So he begins here with a quotation of Joel to let us know that that we have actually begun the last days. And then we'll see in just a moment that uh, he will move to talk about Jesus, who is a man attested by God and who God resurrected. And then we'll see a bit later that the Christ, the, the Messiah that was promised, would be resurrected. 
And so Peter's conclusion is Jesus was resurrected. The Messiah would be resurrected. Jesus is the Messiah. So that's kind of where we're going. But first, Peter deals, uh, quotes Joel. And if uh, you are really familiar with this text, you will have picked up that Peter alters the quotation of Joel just slightly, but importantly. In Joel, you could read uh, that in verse 17, instead of it saying in the last days, it would say afterward. So Peter changes from afterward to saying, and in the last days it shall be. Peter is letting the hearers know, letting us know that the dawn of these last ages is here. What Joel prophesied about the Spirit coming to all people, Joel thought that that was, that was far and distant. And Peter's saying, no, it's here and now. This is what's happening, is what was promised long ago. These last days are now here. And with these last days comes the Spirit of God on all flesh. That is, all who will hope and believe in Christ. We see in verse 20 that the day of the Lord, Peter refers to the day of the Lord, that is the the day of judgment. And so what Joel saw is kind of simultaneous events. Peter's saying, no, right now we have the last days, the, the final judgment, the day of the Lord, that's still coming. But what we have right now is a day of salvation. Verse 21, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter is letting his audience, who are Jews, who would have been familiar with the Old Testament, who would have been familiar with these expectations of the Messiah, he's letting them know that the day of salvation is here. And we know that because the Spirit is being poured out. And so salvation is for those who call upon the name of the Lord. But who is this Lord to whom they are to call on? I'm glad you asked that question. That's exactly what Peter answers next. Jesus of Nazareth. That is who we are to call on. But, but why? I mean, I know we're here in church and that's just the right answer is Jesus, but I mean, really, why can we call on Jesus and be confident that we will be saved? Well, Peter tells us that Jesus was a man attested to you by God. It's important that we recognize that Jesus was truly a man. He was truly God, absolutely, but he was truly a man. He wasn't just any man. He was a man attested by God, God attested to Jesus with mighty works and wonders and signs. That's fancy language for saying God has super attested to Jesus. He's given three different forms of validating. No, this Jesus is the Messiah. And so to attest to something is to officially authenticate it. We had a unique experience uh, in the process of trying to go to Bulgaria, uh, my wife and I were missionaries there for a couple years. And beforehand, Bulgaria, they, they required all of our documentations, birth certificates, marriage license, uh, bank statements. We had to get an FBI background check. I mean, they wanted all the documents to know that we actually were who we said we were. 
But they didn't just want these documents that attested to our identity and to who we were, at least the things that governments care about anyway. They didn't just want those government official, uh, officially signed documents. They wanted us to get all of those uh, apostilled. And an apostille is another official governmental seal that you pay an extra fee for to put on top of two already government official documents. It's redundant, in case you're wondering. And it's very annoying to have to get all of your documents done this way. But this is what Bulgaria wanted. They wanted government official documents with another government official seal stapled on to it. So what we had was a doubly official document so that way they could be really certain that we were who we said we were. And this is what God did to Jesus. He attested to the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And this man was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So this man attested by God was delivered over and crucified. And so here we come to the very center of what is for some a problem, but not to the Bible. The relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And Peter puts both of these things before us and he has no problems with them. You see, Satan's best plan, which was also his most evil plan, was to crucify the Son of God. And yet, in doing that, he was actually fulfilling God's purpose of saving a people for himself. And so we see this, what we can call mystery, playing out before us. That on the cross, Satan is both active there and so is God. God is sovereign. And yet Peter lets us know who you crucified. You are still responsible for your sin. Their hands were not innocent in the matter and ours aren't either. But Peter continues that God raised him up and says that it was impossible for him to actually be held by death. Well, where does Peter get this? Where's Peter going? He quotes Psalm 16, starting in verse 25. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter continues explaining that, that Jesus was crucified, he was dead, buried, but God raised him up. Why? Well, because Jesus was the Holy One, to use the language of Psalm 16. He was the Messiah. And so again, Peter, talking to Jews, appeals to Psalm 16, which David authored. None of that would have been a dispute to them. That would have been common ground to those listening. And he says that David wasn't writing about himself here. But rather, David was actually a prophet. 
And he was prophesying about the future Messiah. So David isn't talking about himself, but he's talking about the one who would come and sit on his throne forever. That one would not see corruption. Rather, he would be resurrected. And so here's the logic in the sermon. That David, as a prophet, said that the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One, would not be abandoned to Hades. The Messiah would be resurrected. So that's what God promised in the Old Testament. It's how they could be confident of who the Messiah was. And so Peter then says that, well, Jesus rose from the dead. And we're witnesses of that. We've seen it firsthand. He's proven that to us. We ate with him. We talked with him. He taught us after he was dead and resurrected. And so therefore, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Holy One that was promised long ago. And so as confirmation, God exalts Jesus to his right hand. And at, in his exaltation at the right hand of the Father, he then pours out the Holy Spirit. So Peter says that Jesus is responsible for what they saw and what they heard, the miracle of speech at Pentecost. Jesus is responsible for that. Why? Well, because Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father and exercises his full kingly reign and pours out his spirit. And once again, Peter appeals to the Old Testament here. He says in verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David, as a prophet, foresaw the Messiah. He foresaw the resurrection. He foresaw that the Messiah would be raised and then exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And Peter's saying, And that is Jesus. That's who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And so the conclusion to his sermon is in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter says, with certainty... Know this, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Now, the resurrection is not so much a proof of Jesus' divinity, although he was divine, that's essential, but it was proof that Jesus was who he said he was. It was proof that Jesus was the Messiah, like he said he was. It was proof that Jesus was the long-awaited snake crusher who fulfilled the law and freed his people by paying their debt. And so God raised Jesus up as the Messiah. And sometimes this language of God made him to be Lord and Christ has sometimes caused confusion. What does it mean to be made? Was he not that already? No, of course he was. He was Lord and Christ before his death and resurrection. And in fact, that's why he was raised. 
John Stott says it better than I can. He says, it is rather that now God exalted Jesus to be in reality and power what he already was by right. Read that again. God exalted Jesus to be in reality and power what he already was by right. That he is both Lord and Christ. So we see in Peter's sermon that the apostles are not drunk, not filled with wine, but rather this is the fulfillment of what was promised long ago. That the last days are here and the Holy Spirit is now being given to God's people. And Jesus is the Christ who sits at God's right hand where He rules and reigns. And so that's Peter's message. How do they respond? The last section of our time today is divine application. Let me just read these last verses for us. Verses 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of being cut to the heart. I would venture to say most of us probably have. I know I have. Maybe you made a joke about someone and they entered the room right as you finished the punchline. You made eye contact with them. Immediately you were, you were cut to the heart. Or maybe it was a harsh word that you spoke to an employee or your wife or your kids and as soon as you finished saying it, you realized, man, I should not have said that. You were cut to the heart. When we offend someone we care about and then we're confronted with that, we're often cut to the heart. And these listeners were cut to the heart. Their guts were wrenched at the message that they had just heard from Peter because they realized that Peter wasn't just preaching a sermon that was high in the sky way out there, but he was addressing them, that they had crucified the Messiah and that they were culpable and that they were guilty of God's wrath. And so they were cut to the heart and they cried out, okay, what should we do? And so Peter answers them. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice Peter's response to them being cut to the heart is not, well, just continue feeling sorry for yourself. That's great. Just stay there forever. 
No, he says repent. Repent is a turning of the mind and life away from sin and toward God. That is the appropriate response to the gospel. Now again, we could get a little cautious here by saying, well, is the gospel just one of repentance? Where's faith? I mean, aren't we justified by faith alone? Absolutely. Faith is implicit in this call to repent. That's to say, repentance without faith is actually impossible. You could modify some behavior, but without actually faith in God, you can't turn then to God in repentance. And even later in Acts chapter 20, uh, we read that uh, Paul in Ephesus was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll see later that gospel proclamation includes both repentance and faith. You don't get one without the other. And so he says to repent, to turn away from your sin and turn towards God in faith through Christ. And then he says to be baptized. Notice he says that each of you is to be baptized. This message is proclaimed to the the crowd And yet, Peter says that each of you are to be baptized. And so as one responds to the gospel with repentance and faith, they are then cleansed by the blood of Christ. They are made new. And this is worked inwardly by the Holy Spirit and is pictured in baptism. And so baptism pictures this faith and repentance but it does not create it. It pictures it, but doesn't create it. And so each of them are to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now Peter finishes this thought that he began with his quotation of Joel. You'll see in verse 21 that Peter says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 36, that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ. And then finally, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The link is clear. The day of salvation is here. Call on the Lord. Who is that? Jesus. Who you are to be baptized into. And so baptism is a sign of your fellowship with Christ. In His death and burial and resurrection and your being brought in to Christ for the remission of your sins and giving yourself up to God through Jesus to walk in the newness of life. It's because of this association with repentance in Christ that we believe that only believers ought to be baptized. And Peter finishes, and so will I, The promise of salvation is not just for Jews and their descendants, but for all who are far off. Indeed, the gospel is for anyone to whom the Lord would call to ourselves, to himself. And so we finish with the church growing. We see that God has worked his word in this crowd. 3,000 people respond to the gospel. They respond with repentance. They received his word and were baptized. And so as we 
finish this morning and we get ready to transition into communion, what great comfort is that to us this morning that the crowd who was mocking and confused at the end, we see 3,000 respond with repentance and faith. God and his word are powerful to cut through even the hardest of hearts. And so as we get ready to wrap up, I pray that that would be an encouragement to you to continue in your sharing of the gospel with others. That God's word really is powerful to penetrate a person's heart. Even that person that you think they're just too far gone. And so don't fear the crowd. Don't fear the the reactions that you might get but rather trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say. And realize that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And for those of you that are in Christ this morning, Jesus is Lord of your life, not just a part of it, but all of it. And our great temptation is to keep holding on to just certain parts of our life the parts that we really like, that we don't really want God to touch. But no, Jesus is Lord, and he has claim over all of your life. And so may we be a people that are quick to repent. We are quick to confess our wrongdoing and come to the Lord who is full of mercy. And may we rejoice in that process because that is part of the Spirit's work in you. That actually is the blessing of the new covenant is that God loves you so much that he would convict you of sin. So rather than being discouraged by that, rather we should be encouraged that God loves us and is working in us and is making us more like Christ. And so as we come now to the communion table, as we have looked at Pentecost and what that means for you and what that means for me. Let's now remember why we have Pentecost, why we have our sins forgiven and why we have the Holy Spirit. That's because Jesus laid down his life as our sacrifice. And so as you take the the bread and as you take the juice, remember Jesus' body and his blood both broken and shed for you. And rejoice that his blood has washed your sins. If you are not a Christian, if you are not trusting in Christ, then I would ask that you would just participate in a different way. That you would just remain seated and consider the things that we've talked about. That God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. That means he's Lord and Christ over your life too. If you want to know more of what it looks like to follow him, uh, please come find me or talk to the person you came with. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, we thank you that when you make a promise, Lord, you fulfill it. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins in his name. And we thank you for the great blessing of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we do pray that you would Make us more like Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.